Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then they water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed, his, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Emily. Guys, before I begin, I just wanted to or encourage all of us to later congratulate Gray. Uh, he got back uh, from Scotland, Edinburgh, I think, last week, and he passed his PhD. Uh, so he's officially a doctor now. So encouraging and uh, privileged to have someone like him bless us uh, with the giftings that God's given him in his uh, exegesis and understanding of, of, of the word uh, and of academia. And he said people can still call him dude, except for me, right? I have to call you doc. Okay, yeah. Um, but congr- congratulate him afterwards. It's such a joy uh, uh, to, to have him and see you uh, pass after all the, the hard work that you put into it. So, all right, guys, we're going to take a break from our series, uh, the book of John, and we're going to go back to our other series called The Life of Jacob, where we take a look at Jacob's life uh, in the Old Testament. Now, I haven't looked at uh, Jacob's life in the Old Testament for a few weeks because we've been preaching through John, and as I reread and restudied about his life, I immediately found comfort. Why? Because one, I, I see how gracious God is, but two... You see him being gracious even to people like Jacob, who messes up over and over and over again. And if you remember uh, Jacob's life, uh, for you that's been here through the Life of Jacob series before we jump back to John, it's a life that's marked by fear. And this fear has made him often forget God over and over and over again, and he's become self-reliant. If you remember the story, he lied to his blind father. He stole the inheritance that was meant for his brother. He manipulated the situation in such a way, disobedient 
of God, un- disconcerning of God's integrity, and he just kind of did his own thing with his own wisdom, with his own strength, went his own way. And that brought him to our passage today where Jacob is running away from his brother because his brother was so angry that Jacob, Jacob stole the inheritance and he wanted to kill him. Where is he going? Jacob is going to his uncle's house, Laban. Why? To find a wife. Now that seems random. Why a wife? Well, this is the only hope left for him. A wife is the only hope left for him to find rest from all his fears. Think about all that a wife represents. Yes, like today, it represents emotional refuge and lasting companionship. But back then, more so, it represented descendants. Remember, this is an age before life and health insurance, right? The only way to ensure provision and protection at an old age from all the fears of the world are descendants. Jacob knew that once he found a wife, finally he can rest. Finally, he can be secure from any future uncertainty. Finally, he can be redeemed from the ghosts of his past mistakes. And finally, he can stop running and settle down. In other words, the story of Jacob is a story of an anxious man running away from fear and anxiety in pursuit of peace. An anxious man running from fear and anxiety in pursuit of peace. But as we soon will see, he keeps looking at it and looking for it in all the wrong places. Now, it might not be a wife for us, for you, or a husband, but we have these things, don't we? that we rely on for a sense of peace and rest. And I hope from today's passage, um, we will see that looking for peace and anything apart from the God of the Bible will actually rob you from true peace. It'll force you to settle for a counterfeit, fragile, lesser kind of peace, and it'll cause you to hurt others in the process. All right, three things I wanna point out. The way we forget God, the consequences of forgetting God, and the God who remembers. The way we forget God, the consequences of forgetting God, and the God who remembers. First one, the way we forget God. So the first verse in the passage, if you take a look at it, you see Jacob is going on on a journey where we see from the previous chapters, he's actually going towards Laban's house. But notice the description that the author gives to where he's going is very peculiar. He doesn't say he's going to Laban's house, which we know is Padan Aram from previous passages. But it said... He, on his journey, he came to a land of the people of the east. Why didn't the author use Padan Aram, but instead chose this general, the east, for Jacob's travels? Two reasons. One, to emphasize a sense of lostness. See, Jacob doesn't really know exactly where, he, where he's just going somewhere toward the east. Generally, I might be going the right direction, but at the end of the day, ambiguity lures in every corner. The unknown awaits ahead of him. It's uncertainty. See the theme of fear and anxiety again. Second reason, the theme of East in the Bible generally communicates sin and trouble. When Adam and Eve sinned and they were cast out of Eden, guess which direction they were cast out to? The East of Eden. When Jonah was being rebellious to God's will, what all of a sudden appeared? An East wind. When God gave the details about how to make the temple, you should have the uh, water basin here and the sacrificial altar here, and this is how big the courtyard should be, and he gave directions, he said, place the Holy of Holies westward and the door of entrance 
towards the Holy of Holies where God's glory resides, where? On the east. Emphasizing Jacob, uh, the story of Genesis, to get to God, you got to go back westward from east. So, so, so east is, is away from God, symbolizes sin, symbolizes uncertainty and fear. So just from one of these verses, from verse 1, we already immediately find Jacob lost in the east. In other words, where is he? He's in a place in life marked with uncertainty and filled with threats of future security. He's in a place in life marked with with uncertainty and filled with threats of future security. A place that may not be too foreign for many of us here. Perhaps some of you are in such a place right now. But we also see that God hasn't left Jacob alone in this place. We see how in the midst of all this uncertainty, we see marks of God's sovereign hand everywhere in the story. How so? First, stick with me. You're going to go back uh, a few, a few uh, chapters here. But first, if you look back five chapters, you have to turn there. But if you go back to Genesis 24, before Jacob was even born, you read a story of Abraham. Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. A story... Um, of Abraham telling one of his servants to go and look for a wife for his son, Isaac. So let me recap. Abraham, the grandfather of Jacob, Isaac, Abraham's son, Jacob's father, and Jacob, Abraham's grandfather. Okay, so Genesis 24, before Jacob was born, Abraham told his servant to find a wife for his son, Isaac, who's going to be later Jacob's father. And what happened when the servant was going and looking for a wife for Isaac. Like Jacob, he came across a well. Like Jacob, you find this well in the desert place. And who lived near the well? Laban, the guy we see in our passage. And who randomly appeared at the well? The future wife. Same exact circumstances in Genesis 24 as you see in Genesis 29. So if you read the Genesis, book of Genesis as a whole book, which you should, the reader will immediately sense that God is still here with Jacob. He's here. He's administering the situation. He's in control over all things, just as he was in chapter 24, in the midst of all this fear and all this anxiety. The second thing that emphasizes God's presence, stick with me, is the theme of the stone. Look at um, verses 2 and 3 of our passage today. You see the end of verse, verse 2. You see a large stone was covering the well, perhaps to keep the water clean. And then verse 3, you see twice again the stone is mentioned. And then again in verse 8. And then again in verse 10. The author seems to not be willing to let our attentions get past this stone. He keeps emphasizing on the stone. Why? Well, if you read Jacob's story, the imagery of the stone is often used to emphasize God's faithful presence and protection. Just as a chapter before this, in Genesis 28, the last, the last verse in Genesis 28 says this, Jacob said to God, If God will be with me and will keep me in his way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. Jacob confessed, God is sovereign. God will be with me. This stone pillar is, is the sign of that. So st- stones throughout the book of Jacob is sign of God's faithfulness. So, scary place in life, with future vagueness and uncertainty, filled with fear and anxiety, yet... God's presence is everywhere. He hasn't forgotten Jacob. May you be encouraged if you're in such a predicament. But yet, what do we tend to do when we're in such a predicament? 
when we're in such a season of life of fear and anxiety? What do we tend to do? Just like Jacob, when we're in such a place, do we not often forget God? Do we not often take matters into our own hands? This is what Jacob did. Where do we see that? Well, earlier, remember I said there was an uncanny similarity between Genesis 24 and Genesis 29. God's hand was in both, situation was the same, but there is a big contrast between the two main characters, Abraham's servant in Genesis 24, and with Jacob in Genesis 29. Same situations, completely two different main characters. Um, You see Abraham's servant in Genesis 24 going about his task of looking for a wife for Isaac in a posture of prayer and trust in the Lord. The whole time he kept looking at God, is this her? Do I go forward here? But Jacob, in our story, you see no concern for God. He just went for it. He just, he he relied on his own wisdom and strength. Okay, so let's let's take a look at Abraham's servant's attitude in pursuit of a wife for Isaac. In verse, uh, Genesis chapter 24, verse 12. This is before he, he met the girl, Rebecca. And he said, the servant said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. He was... In his pursuit, before he entered into it, he was in prayer and a posture of prayer. And then when he saw Rebecca, when he met Rebecca, he didn't just rush into it. The man gazed at her in silence. He paused to learn whether the Lord, Lord has prospered his journey or not. He kept, as he looked at Rebecca, he looked at the Lord. Is this her? There's a posture of, of, of prayer. Then after the Lord confirmed that this is her, Genesis 24, um, Verse 26, 27 says, The man, Abraham's servant, bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. So the whole time, Abraham's servant was prayerful. But now look at Jacob. Look at how he went about it in Genesis 29. He had no concern for God. Let's read verses 10 and 11. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. In other words, Jacob saw Rachel and he lost it. He went to a frenzy. He showed off his muscles by throwing down this big rock that usually takes a few shepherds to throw down. He kissed her. He wept. He saw her and he went for it. Didn't pray before he began. There is no patient, silent observation of her during his pursuit. There is no concern to make sure, is this God's will? Am I rushing into things? There's no thanking of God afterwards. He saw her. He said, oh, she's cute. Bam. (laughs) Just went for it. Unlike Abraham's servant. Why? Why did he do that? Because he was so desperate to get out of this terrible season of life he's in. He wanted out. I'm done with uncertainty. I'm done with anxiety. So who cares what God wants? I'm going for it. And look at what he did to the stone. The stone mentioned over and over and over again. The stone that represents God's faithful protection. He threw it down. Don't care. I don't care. Get me out of here. Jacob forgot God. He wasn't able to see his sovereign hand throughout the scary season of life. And look, Jacob had the information about God. 
Just a few verses ago, at the end of chapter 28, we just read it. He built a pillar of stones. He confessed with his mouth, God is faithful. God will be my salvation. But, but all it took was a bit of fear. All it took was a bit of anxiety for him to throw it all down. This wasn't an informational issue. Like us, he would have had no problem reading the assurance of pardon today. God is my rock and my refuge. He would have had no problem singing the song we just said, Jesus, Jesus, how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. Informationally, perhaps like us, he knows that God is all of those things, but do we not, like him, functionally live our lives as if he's none of those things? We confess to be trusting servants, but is it not our experience that all it takes is a bit of anxiety? All it takes is a bit of fear and uncertainty to reveal that we actually would rather be independent agents. I know, I know God's revealed his will and how to date in light of marriage, but I'm just not that young anymore. I don't have the luxury to trust him and follow his word. Fear, anxiety. I know the implications that Christian integrity has on my business, but that's just not things, how things are done here in Indonesia. I don't have the luxury to trust him and follow his word. Fear, anxiety. There's nothing like fear and anxiety that reveals where it is our trust really lies, isn't there? I played college tennis in college, duh. Um, and in college tennis, it, it's a best of five system. So one team of players from one school plays another team of players from another school. And whoever gets the three points first, best of five, right? If you get the three first, um, you win. You win the whole match. Now, remember, this is one school we were playing, and it was two all. We've won two matches, they've won two matches, and things got tense. Things got scary. Because whoever wins the next one wins the whole match. And you know in these situations that the coach will put the best player in to play the determining match. And it's always a sensitive situation. Because in these scary situations, the coach can't hide it anymore. He can't hide what? He can't hide to reveal which player he actually trusts the most. I mean, if we're winning 2-0 or 2-1, maybe the coach can still afford to be nice. Maybe he still has a luxury to let the not-so-good players play because if they lose, we haven't really lost the match yet, right? But when it's 2-all, when it's tense, when it's scary, you'll see. You'll see who the coach actually has most faith in. He'll put that player on the court. He didn't choose me for that game, by the way. <laughs> The point is that scary situations always reveal who and what it is you trust in most. You may have the luxury to sing songs like we just did, Sovereign God is in sovereign control, Jesus, I trust you, but functionally, the other six days of the week, is that how we live? When push comes to shove, when fear presents itself. If you're anything like me, you can relate to Jacob. When things get scary, more often than not, we push God aside, we throw it down, and we get on the court. Why? Because we're currently living east of Eden. We know what it feels like to have our peace threatened. We know what it feels like to have our trust betrayed. We're in the midst of uncertainty every day. So what do we do? When push comes to shove, we forget God, we put ourselves on the court to ensure our peace through our self-effort without realizing it by doing so. We're offending God. We're robbing ourselves from true peace and we're hurting everybody else in the process. Brings us to our second point the consequence of forgetting God. Okay, 
Here's the claim I think this passage is making. I think it's saying, if your pursuit of peace is not found in an eternal, unchangeable being that's committed to you, in other words, the God of the Bible, if your pursuit of peace is not found in an eternal, unchangeable being that's committed to you, two things will happen. One, you'll fall into a sort of forged and fragile type of peace, and or, two, you'll hurt others. You'll fall into a forged or fragile type of peace, two, you'll hurt others. First one, you'll fall into a forged or uh, just self-made or fragile kind of peace. Look at verse 11. Why did Jacob fall into tears when he saw Rachel? He saw Rachel, and then he just, he wept. This is it. He lost it. Why? Well, he must have somehow at that moment, right at verse 11, truly believed that this was it. This was the end of his hardship. This story has an happy, has an happy ending. I'm going to marry Rachel, and I'm going to live happily. For him to feel that kind of emotion, he must have assumed that was going to happen. But think about it. To feel that amount of peace, Jacob had to assume a lot of things. To feel that kind of immediate peace and joy right then and there when he saw Rachel, Jacob had to assume something very important. One of those things is Jacob had to assume that Laban, Rachel's father, was just going to let them marry that easily. He didn't know that Laban would do that. He didn't know what Laban would do. Yet he jumped into conclusion and he prematurely felt all this joy and peace. Why? Because he assumed... And it's an assumption. When he saw Rachel, he forged a, a, a version of the future where Laban would just welcome him with open arms and approve the marriage. He had to assume a version of, for him to feel all that peace, he had to assume everything was going to go well. See, it's a forged peace for, based on your own assumptions of what the future will be like with this person. But if you know the continuation of the story, this is not at all what happened. Look at verse 13 to 14. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you're my bone, uh, you're, you're my bone and my flesh. Now, yes, Laban here looked like he was welcoming Jacob. Laban looked like here he was embracing him, and, and things seemed like they were going as planned. But the whole time, Laban was actually trying to trick Jacob. If you know the continuation of the story, which we'll study next week, Laban eventually tells Jacob, okay, uh, I'll give you Rachel if you work for me for seven years. I mean, that alone should be suspect, right? He didn't care. He did it. He worked for him for seven years. And then after working for Laban for seven years, this is what Laban said. Oh, you know what? Actually, it's not proper for the younger sister to get married before the older sister. So I'm going to give you Leah, Rachel's older sister, and to get Rachel, you're just going to have to work for me for another seven years. What did Jacob do? He didn't care. He did it. Not knowing all the time, this whole time, Laban wanted free labor. Jacob was going to work and labor and toil for another 14 years before he actually got Rachel. Now, okay, you romantics out there will say, isn't that sweet? It is sweet. I guess, sweet. But here's what I'm trying to point out. Ask yourself, would Jacob have felt the same amount of peace and joy in verse 11 that he did feel there if he actually knew the future, the real future? 
if he knew in verse 11 that actually he's going to have to work and toil and labor for seven years only to be tricked to then work and toil and labor for another seven, another seven years to get Rachel. And actually, he had to wait another 14 years before he can truly rest. Would he have felt this immediate sense of peace? I don't know if he would have. You see, the reason he's able to feel that in verse 11, because when he saw Rachel, he immediately forged his own version of the future. A version of the future where there are no roadblocks. Everything was going to be fine. I wasn't going to have to work for 14 years to marry Rachel. I might have to, you know, wait a few years, but then eventually I'll get married. And, and based on that version of the future, he felt peace. And this forged version of the future allowed his heart to immediately rejoice. But the peace he felt, you see, had to be accompanied by a forged version of future, which didn't come true. And we all do this to a degree, don't we? When someone walks down the aisle and their, their face is sparkling, and they have a big smile, and they say the words, I do, just like when Jacob saw Rachel, they're not thinking of all the things that could go wrong in their marriage. They're focusing on the good things. They're thinking about the version of the future that's nice and good. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong to do that. We, we all have to do that. There's just too many unknowns in life. We'd go crazy if we live life trying to handle all the what-ifs. Gregory Zilberg, a Russian psychiatrist, 1900s, uh, he said, if this fear were as constantly conscious, we would be unable to function normally. It must be properly repressed to keep us living with any modicum of comfort. We can't function. If we think about the hundred unknowns in life that could go wrong in our child's life, in our career, in our marriages, in our dating relationships, we'll never find joy in life. So what do we do? We do what we have to do. To an extent, we live life with forged versions of the future that isn't fatalistic, that isn't worst-case scenario, or else life is going to be way too depressing. It's not wrong to do that, but I think deep inside, we know. We know, no matter how well we believe in this version of the future about our child's life, the vision we have for our marriage and our career, deep inside, we know that it's, it's to an extent forged. To an extent, it's an invention of our own minds, and it's, that's, that's why it's fragile. Because deep inside, you know, if the object of your peace is not eternal, if the object of your peace is not unchangeable, a Laban can pop out at any moment and take it away. An American philosopher, William Jaynes, uh, says it more poetically. He said, let sanguine healthy-mindedness, sanguine healthy-mindedness, the happy mind, let sanguine healthy-mindedness do its best with its strange power of living in the moment to ignore and forget. Still, the evil background is really there to be thought of and the skull will grin in at the banquet. We know, we know in the back of our minds, we know that whatever is on earth, that we set our final hope and peace in, if it's not eternal, if it's not unchangeable, then it's not completely protected from all threats. The sanguine mind can come up with the best version of the future, but at the end of the day, if it's not eternal, if it's not unchangeable, the skull still grins. So what do some of us do? We either settle for this fragile peace that we deep inside we know is changeable and is, is uh, 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 at threat, or we get frantic 
and we micromanage, which is what Jacob did. Look at verse 7. As soon as he saw Rachel, he got frantic. He tried to micromanage everything. Verse 7, he told the shepherds to get out of there so he could be alone with Rachel. He said, behold, he was talking to the shepherds that was hanging out near the well. It's still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. He's saying, look, it's still early. It's not noon yet. It's not really that hot yet. So remove, remove the stone covering, give the sheeps a quick drink, then shoo. Go away so I can make a move on Rachel. And the shepherds in verse 8 said, uh, no, I can't move the stone because it's too heavy. We need to wait for more shepherds to come to move it, which really is just laziness because Jacob was able to move on his own. So it's I mean, terrible wingman, right? So he saw Rachel, and he thought, she's the object of my peace, and he went into frantic micromanage overdrive mode. And, and notice what happened when he did that. He demonized those who stood in his way. He viewed the shepherds not as human beings, merely as those who were blocking his road towards his object of peace. And he said, shoo, go away. See, the more you idolize something on earth as your ultimate source of peace, the more you'll dehumanize and demonize those who aren't helping you get it. The more you idolize something on earth as your ultimate source of peace, the more you'll dehumanize and demonize those who aren't helping you get it. Do you know people like that? Do you see this trait in yourself, perhaps? So there it is. The natural consequence of finding rest in anything other than the eternal, unchangeable being, the God of the Bible, that's committed to you. One, you'll settle for a peace that's fragile. Because deep inside, you know it's not protected from all threats. You may feel joy, but deep inside, you know it's fragile. Or two, you'll get really frantic, and you'll try really, really hard to get that object of peace and protect it from all threats, which is going to cause you to dehumanize and demonize those who are in your way and who threaten it. What God's trying to tell us here is you're created for more. You're created for more. You're made for more than this fragile peace that you know deep inside you can't back up with absolute certainty. You're made to have everlasting peace that is certain, that cannot be taken away, that doesn't lead you to object objectifying people, but actually helps you love them better. How? Where is such a peace to be found? Last point. The God who remembers. All right. So we've taken an extensive look at what the passage says about Jacob. But the point of Jacob's story isn't to cast your eyes on Jacob, but on the God of Jacob. So let us now look at him. The God of Jacob saw Jacob's life. A mess in fear. What did he do? He remained faithful to him. As we've seen the first point, the mark of God's sovereign hand is all over this story. God was with Jacob in this frightening season of life. But why? Why was God so patient? Wasn't Jacob forgetful of him? Didn't Jacob cast God aside and made decisions on his own? Why did God stick around? Well, if you read the book of Genesis again as a full story, you'll see he stuck around not because Jacob deserved it, but because God remembered a promise that he made. What promise? A promise that he made to Abraham. Remember Jacob's grandfather, a long ago, before Jacob was born. God made a promise that he will protect and be with Abraham's descendants. 
Let's look at Genesis 17, verse 7. This is one of the places where that promise was, that covenant promise was spoken. God saying to Abraham, I will establish my covenant, which means promise, between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's it. That's why God's sovereign handprints was all over Jacob's story, not because Jacob deserves it, not because Jacob did anything to earn it, but because God is an eternal and constant being that has committed himself to Jacob through the promise he made with Abraham and his descendants. That's why God stuck around. Now, we might say, well, I'm glad for Jacob. Good for him. But God hasn't offered me that covenant promise. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Let's go now to the New Testament. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 26, verse 27 and 28. Look at what he says about this covenant. And he took a cup. I wish we were doing communion today. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, his disciples, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. You see the connection here? God told Abraham in Genesis 17, the Old Testament, I will covenant with you. I'll make a promise to always be with you and always be your God and your descendants. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 26? My blood shed on the cross is the fulfillment of that covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. This is why God stuck around. Why was he so patient with Jacob? Why was he able to endure Jacob's rebellion and ignorance of him? All Jacob did was spit at God's face every day, hurt people left and right, lied to his father, stole from his brother, shooed the shepherds. Why didn't God just crush him right then and there? Why was God such at peace with Jacob? Because all that wrath God rightfully had on Jacob was eventually going to be placed on Jesus when he climbed on that cross. This is my blood of the covenant, he said, poured out for the forgiveness of sin. God was gracious to Jacob who deserved wrath because Jesus offered himself to be crushed in Jacob's place. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means you have peace with God. It means that God will always be with you, even in the scariest moments. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've remembered him your whole life. But because all the wrath that was meant to crush you has been placed on Jesus instead. Why do you think Paul said those who are in Christ are the descendants of Abraham? Because in Christ, we have the same covenant promise that God has promised Abraham's descendants. Okay, that's great. But what does this have to do with peace? Having peace with God still doesn't give us knowledge of the future. The Christian doesn't all of a sudden have a cheat sheet that tells them what's going to happen to their child's life, to their bank account, their career, to their marriage. The Christian is living in just as much uncertainty as a non-Christian. Yes, absolutely. But the Christian now enters into those uncertainties with the God who is eternally constant, who will never change. They enter into these uncertainties with the God who's planned their salvation on the cross all the way back to Abraham's day, even before that. A God who's remained consistent with them 
all the centuries up to when he was actually crucified for them. And a God whose love for them never faltered a single bit, even when the cross was right in front of his face. See, Christian peace is not found in knowing the future. It's found in knowing that an eternal, unchangeable being has committed himself to you, regardless of what the future holds. That's Christian peace. Now you might say, doesn't every other religion offer a God like this? No, they don't. No other religion proclaims a God who's planned out and secured your eternal salvation by taking upon himself the consequences of your sin. Every other religion says you must earn it. You must earn it. Be moral, be religious, do more good things than bad things. Then you'll earn peace with him. And even then, you don't know for sure what's going to happen until the verdict comes. What does that leave you with? At best, with a fragile kind of peace. If my salvation, my eternal salvation is up to me and my works, my religiosity, my morality, all the good things I've done, then there will always be a degree of uncertainty. I'll I'll do my best, but I really don't know. It's fragile. You can assume of a good outcome. You can forge a good future, but deep inside you know the skull still holds power. But the gospel offers a God that's completely different. He doesn't leave his peace with you up to chance. He's planned it from ages past. He's accomplished it on the cross. And once he's given it to you, he's proclaimed to never let you go. So now we can look at our lives and say with boldness, Oh, death, where is your sting? And say all that without falling into pride because we know it's not a result of our own righteousness. Where is your sting? See, without this, without this unwavering assurance of having peace with him, you're always going to be suspect of him and his commands. Why is he asking me to do this? Is he trying to punish me for some old sin? Why is he not letting me do that? Is he still upset at me for some reason? Why is he commanding me to do this? Is he just giving me some generic command without caring about my specific circumstance? But the Christian looks at the cross. He knows he has peace with God. And he rests. He no longer suspects him. Because you see the cross and you see how meticulously he's planned your salvation throughout eternity. Therefore, whatever he's asking me to do must not be because he doesn't care or because he's somehow unaware of my specific circumstance. He's thought about me. You look at the cross and you see just how precious you are to him. He must not be asking me to do this difficult thing because somehow he doesn't care about me. You look at the cross and you see how he's declared you to be righteous and forgiven. And you think, therefore, he must not be asking me to do this because he wants me to pay for some old sin that's left unpaid or because somehow he still holds a grudge. No, you're at peace with him. So you find yourself in a scary spot in life, in a time where you're really tempted to disregard him and just rush through the decision based on what you think is best, then you look at the cross and you look at what that reveals about your God. And you think to yourself, you know what? I can trust him. It'll help you breathe and slow down. Look at his word, approach things prayerfully, be open to biblical counsel, and look unto him before making a decision. And yes, you might still be naive about the future. 
You may not know what it holds, but now you know that the skull no longer grins at you because your God has embraced it for you when he died in your place on that cross. So come what may, those who are in Christ can say, my peace no longer needs to be forged. I no longer need to deny the possibility of future turmoil and loss. It could happen. It could happen. But if it does happen, and when it does happen, my God, set my eyes on your cross and remind me that an eternal, all-powerful, unchangeable being who is in charge of all of history has committed himself to me and promised good to me, not because I deserve it, but because of his mercy. Friends, that is the gospel. Amazing grace, glorious mercy, true peace. Slow down. Look at him. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, to do that is something that we know will fail over and over and over. And all it takes is a bit of fear and a bit of anxiety for us to take the decisions back into our hands, for us to throw down the stone and not care about you and your faithfulness. But Father, we beg you that by your mercy, by the same grace and mercy that has captured our hearts into receiving this gospel of grace, I pray that same spirit, that same mercy, continues to grow us deeper in this gospel so that we may grow in our trust and love of you so that we know who you are and who we are and we now find peace not in any earthly thing, not in our own efforts, but a peace of knowing that an eternal being that is unchangeable has committed himself to me, not because I'm good, but because he is good and merciful. And now, Lord, we don't have to fall into frantic micromanaging. We don't have to demonize and shoo away those that aren't helping us towards whatever it is on earth that we want. But we can truly love you and be at peace that isn't forged. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.